king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, just to remind us, what's she there for? Well, she's there because Haman has put out this decree with the king's signet ring that in about 11 months, everybody in the kingdom can rise up and kill a Jew, and they can slaughter them. And then whatever they own, you can take that, and it'll be yours. And so her uncle, or I'm sorry, her cousin, Mordecai, who was her adopted father, said, you need to do something about this. How do you know that God didn't put you in the position of queen for this very purpose? And she said, you know... I uh, could be killed if I go to see the king and I'm not asked to go and I haven't been there for 30 days. And then she came to the conclusion, if I die, I die. And so now she puts on her queenly robes and she is wearing uh, probably the best that is available to her. And I'm sure she's all dolled up and has her makeup on, everything that she wants. And she goes and she stands in the outer court in front of the king's room. And she is waiting to see what the king will do. Will he hold out his scepter and save her life? Or will he not hold out his scepter? Then some other people will come and get her. And they will take her and they will execute her. It's a big deal. Well, here she is. And she's standing in front of the king's rooms. Verse 2. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the, of the scepter. The most difficult thing she had to do up to this point was that. And she didn't know what would happen, whether she'd be arrested right then and taken to death, or she would go tend to her husband and he would allow her to be there and not kill her. Thank the Lord in heaven uh, he allowed her to go in. Verse 3, then the king asked and said, what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Now notice the banquet's already ready. So if she was on her way to be killed, uh, nobody would eat the banquet. But she made the banquet, she went obviously by faith, and now uh, she's got the invitation out. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires, or according to the word of Esther. I want you to notice that he doesn't hesitate at all here. Uh, first thing out of his mouth is, she wants Haman to come, Haman's going to come, go get him quickly. So the king and Haman came to the banquet, which Esther prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, because he's starting to wonder, what is this about? What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. Now, those are idiomatic expressions. It's a way of saying, I'm not going to withhold anything from you. It doesn't literally mean that I'll give you one half of my kingdom. That wouldn't have been possible. He's saying, uh, the sky's the limit here, whatever you want. So he uses that idiom. Other kings in other places have used it. All right, verse 7. So Esther replied, my petition, my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition to do what I request, May the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. She says, okay, one more request. Would you come to a banquet I'm going to make for you and Haman tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what it is that I really want. And so, obviously, uh, these guys are going to come. Verse 9, 
we're after the banquet now, and Haman has to go home. Then Haman went out on that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. So get this, all morning long, things have been going great. The queen asked me to come with the king, and there were no other guests. Wow, talk about flying high. He put the, this guy, Haman is in this position. He's second in the kingdom. He is powerful. The king said everybody, uh, you know, bow down to him and honor him. So he's got the honor of all these people. He just finishes at a very special banquet. You see, he is one happy guy. And on the way home, he sees this man standing there, not bowing to him again. Mordecai, I just hate him. And he just uh, is now gone from just great joy to great anger. Here's something he doesn't do very often in verse 10. Haman controlled himself. However, he went to his house and he sent, or he had brought to his house, his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him. And how he had been promoted, the word in the Hebrew for promoted means for to lift someone up. He's been lifted up above everybody else, every provincial leader, every governor, everyone else in the kingdom. And he is second only to the king of this country. And he's telling everybody about it. And uh, he was promoted above the princes and the servants of the king. Haman also said, get this, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to, his bank, to her banquet, which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Now I want you to pay close attention because now we're going to see, I think I had a fly get in my eye, I'm sorry. Uh, now we're going to see what happens when you come face to face with one of your problems in life that really isn't that big and you have everything else going for you, but this seems to be human nature. He said in verse 13, yet, despite all this, despite my glory, my riches, my power, my family, my wife, my friends, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows, and we have decided that's not a place to hang somebody, but it's an impaling pole. And so their advice to him is, have a gallows, and we're going to change cubits to feet, 75 feet high, made, and in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai impaled on it, hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so the gallows were made. Now, I don't know what time the banquet got over that day. I assume it was somewhere around noon, maybe went on a couple hours or so, I don't know. But he goes home, he calls his friends, they have this talk, and they decide what he ought to do, and that is kill Mordecai. And uh, he says, you know what, yeah, that's the plan. That's a great plan. Then I'm going to be able to go to the banquet and enjoy myself, and I'm going to do it first thing in the morning, first time I see the king in the morning, because he met with the king in the morning, because he's the second in command. That's the first thing that's going to come out of my mouth. And by the way, it's so sure, it is so certain, 
I'm going to have that thing built this afternoon. Well, he's got a lot of people at his disposal. I don't know how long it takes to set up a 75-foot high impaling pole, but that's what they can do. And they'll have it done by this evening. And so it goes. Now I want us to go back and look at uh, the way this is unfolding. In verses 1 and 2, what we're going to learn here is that the believer puts her life in God's hands, leaving the outcome up to him. When that girl put on her robes that morning, she had no idea what was going to happen. She, no, no, no question, had understood that there were people that went to the king who shouldn't be there. He withheld the scepter, and they were executed. She knows the law. The law cannot be changed. It cannot be broken. If the king does not want her presence there, it doesn't matter how good she looks in her robes, if he doesn't hold out that scepter to her, she's a dead woman. Now, you might think back a little ways to another woman that was married to the king, and she just disobeyed him and didn't come to a banquet and show herself off like he wanted her to. And the king took Vashti, and he took away her throne, her crown, and he banished her. This woman knows that the king doesn't mess around with disobedience, and she has not been asked to go there. But she is asked to go there by God. Even though his name is not used, it's the right thing to do. And she's going to leave the outcome to him. Now, we know uh, this from her plan in chapter 4, verse 16. If I perish, I will perish. And there's nothing I can do about that. I must do the right thing. And we need to ask ourselves, would that be my attitude? Would I have gone that morning? Would I be ready to do this? Would I be ready to stand there and take my life in my hands? She knows the law, not showing up to the inner court without appointments or having been invited, and she mentioned to her, to her cousin, I haven't been asked over there for 30 days. I don't know he's going to ask me tomorrow. And if the king doesn't like it, he will not extend the golden scepter of life in his hand, because that's what the scepter, that's what it was about. A king would hold a scepter, especially an Egyptian, and it had a, had a crook on it like a shepherd's crook. And what that meant was the king holds life and death in his hands. He's the shepherd of his people. And this was life and death. And if the king doesn't like what's going on, she will not get that scepter and she will be hauled off and killed. If he extends it, everything is going according to her plan. Now our chapter opens with Esther standing in the very place she does not have permission to be. She is willing to risk her life for her fellow Jews and she's there. She showed up and she's been busy. Imagine uh, getting a banquet ready for somebody, and you're not sure whether you're even going to be there to eat it. She has this banquet ready. Her maids have helped her. Everyone else has helped her. The eunuchs have helped her, and they're ready to go. And she's standing there wondering what's going to happen with her life. In verse 1, when she stopped fasting, she donned her royal robes, and she went to the inner court where the king's rooms were. She stands in front of the throne room, not in it, but outside the door. He can see her there. And here we go. What's going to happen? Well, verse 2. The next verse reports that he sees her, and she gets favor in his sight, and he holds out the scepter of gold to her. Her life is spared. Now, the plan isn't a sure thing yet, but her life is spared. She's going to live. Now, what I want you to understand is that the king knows that this girl that I love it's not going to do this because she knows I can kill her unless there's something on her mind that really needs my attention. 
and so he lets her in. And I believe God in heaven is able to, to cause a person to be looked at favorably by another person or not favorably. And he did that very thing here for the queen. And I would like to say, in terms of something we can apply to our lives, is something that I pray all the time, and that is that God would give us, as a church, as individuals, that God would give us favor in the eyes of the unbelieving, some of your friends, some of your work associates who don't know Jesus Christ, that would give us favor so that we can share Christ with them or so that we can minister to them in an unhindered way. So what I'm saying is that you should pray that too. And you might have people that don't like you. You might have people that won't talk to you. You might have people that don't say anything good about you, but we don't care. We're trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're trying to reach people with the good news. Have you ever thought about, let's just stop and pray right now, or I'm going to stop and pray right now and say, God, give me favor in that person's eyes. And maybe that will open the door. And maybe I can have a relationship with them and a ministry to them. So let's don't forget that. Esther came, touched the top of the scepter, and acknowledged his permission to live. And we don't know her plan at this point, but this is how it starts. Now in verses 3 to 8, we learn that a person's favor towards us opens the door to achieve what we need to achieve. There's story after story of missionaries who have wanted to do some work, mission work in a certain place, and they had to ask the elders of that village or of that town who worshipped other gods, who didn't care about Jesus and really didn't care about the gospel, didn't like Christians, had to ask them permission. They prayed for favor before they went. And unbelievably, just inexplicably, these people get permission to go into these places. See, once you have the favor of the person in charge, then you can do the things you want to do. Now, God's in charge first, but people also need to get out of the way. As we see the plan unfolding, we can see the brilliance of the way that Hadassah works around the king. Now, yeah, when, when she was in training, she had to take uh, a whole class about how do you act in front of the king? What do you do when you're around the king? What do you not do when you're around the king? What, what, what is appropriate? What is not appropriate? I understand that she learned that, but she is doing it brilliantly. And it's because of what it says in Proverbs 14.35. The greatest king of Israel that ever lived in terms of how much land he had, how much wealth he had, how much wisdom he had, was King Solomon. And King Solomon's advice in Proverbs 14.35 is this. He said the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. The king thought that something must be troubling the queen, probably from the fact that she just risked her life to see him. He basically asked her, what's the problem? And what do you need from me? And he uses that idiomatic expression. He says, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Uh, and don't, don't hesitate to ask me. I'll give it to you. Now, I don't believe he, that's an expression we see with lots of kings. It just means, I'm going to be generous. I'm glad you're here, and I'm going to give you whatever you want. And so he uses that. He just means, I'm going to be very, very generous and gracious. He basically tells her, why don't you just tell me what you want, and I'll take care of it. Well, she has prepared a banquet for her husband, and she wants him to bring Haman. Now we're starting to understand this part of the plot that she has. 
and he'll be the king's guest at the banquet. So how hard would that be? The king says, okay, what's your request? He says, well, I'd like you to come to a banquet. Oh, okay. Uh, that's not too hard. He can do that. I think he was pleased with that. She is humble and very politely asks him uh, to do this if he is pleased to do so. With that idea, would he go ahead? In verse 5, the king is more than eager, the way the text is written, to give Esther the desires of her heart. If Esther wants us to go to a banquet, we're going to a banquet. He probably knew that he was paying for all the food anyway because the queen didn't have a job. She's just the queen. She's going to use his money in the banquet. You know, it didn't bother him. Yeah, she made it for me, and we're going to go. And notice that Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, the same guy, wants Haman to hurry up. Go get Haman right now. The queen said we're going to do this. We're going to go do it. Let's don't delay. My wife has a request. We're going to keep it. Well, Haman said, well, I was going to go out to eat with some guys. No, you're not. Uh, you're going to go and see the queen. Well, I had, I had to go home and see Jerez. No, you're not. doesn't matter what you're doing. And Haman wouldn't think that way because this is just another rung on the ladder clear to the top to him. Now I'm being asked to a private party with the king and his wife, Esther. So the two of them, the only guests, come and eat and drink with Esther. They apparently had a good time. The king, we know, drinks a lot. In verse 6, Ahasuerus repeats his desire to know what she wants. Okay, he's there, he's at the banquet, we've eaten, things are going well. Hey, queen, why don't you just tell me what you want? I want to know. And he wants to, to know uh, more about it, but she says, no, um, I'm going to make a request, uh, after you made your request, in verse 6, uh, to let me tell you what it is, and she stalls again in verses 7 and 8. And she asks him a follow-up banquet question. Will you and Haman come again tomorrow? And that's where I'll tell you what I want. And she promises, I will tell you what you want tomorrow if you'll come to the banquet. And they're both willing to come to the banquet. Make sure that you know there is no way that she could know that the king would be restless uh, that very night. Not because of the food, not because the wine wasn't that good, but because God makes him restless. Now, you and I know the story, so we don't want to jump all over that right now, but I just want to bring that out. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't have any, any way to control what's going to happen. Maybe she can get him to a banquet, but tomorrow she's going to make a big request. But today, it's just a banquet. And she has no idea that the king is going to have a bad night, and he can't sleep. And he calls for the chronicles of his acts to come and be read. And little did Haman know that he would be parading Mordecai all over the city of Susa, proclaiming that this is what the king does when somebody does something good for the king. And he's going to be wearing royal robes. He's going to be on the finest of the king's stallions. And they're, going to, they're just going to lead him through, and Haman gets to do that. He doesn't know that either, that that's what he's going to do tomorrow morning. Dr. Schmutzer, in commentating on this particular part, uh, in uh, this says, and I quote, This is the way it is for us, as well-doing. The right but uncomfortable thing often blesses us with a chance to do things that are even more right and less comfortable. I hear Christians all the time saying, I prayed about this, and I don't have peace about doing it, and that's my reason I'm not going to do it. Well, I'm glad that Esther didn't pray that way, 
There was no peace going there and standing in the, in the entryway to the king's throne room. There was just a will and a determination to do what is right. And let, let God do what he wants. Let the chips fall where they may. Sometimes in my own life, some of the greatest things I've been able to be a part of have been the things that have caused the most pain and the hardest to do. And I don't just say to everything, if I don't feel peace about it, I'm not going to do it. Normally, I find that people don't feel peace about something because they don't want to do it. Well, how can I say, well, that's, that's wrong? Well, I can say it in a, in a sermon when it's not about any particular person so you can understand uh, what's really going on here and what Dr. Schmutzer said. Sometimes God uses you in uncomfortable things, and he brings bigger uncomfortable things along because you did so well in the last one and served him. I'm not saying it's something to you know, write home to mom about, but it's what God does. In verses 9 and 10, we learn that anger ruins people's joy. It didn't take a genius to figure that out, did it? Anger ruins people's joy. And that's what happens to Haman. Haman was feeling good about this invitation by the queen until Mordecai refused to bow to him on his way home, and it made him furious. He was furious with Mordecai, but he decided to keep himself under control, which is not like this guy. And he gets home, and he calls his wife, he calls Zeresh and his friends to come over for a gripe session. It's a pity party that ends up in a party to plan a murder. In verses 11 through 14, despite a person's greatness, hubris, which you'll remember is exaggerated pride, we, we can have pride and then we have hubris, which is exaggerated pride, it's pride over the top, pride above and beyond. Despite a person's greatness, hubris can drive them to murder others. Murder is always a selfish act, and a lot of times driven by pride and hubris. In verses 11 and 12, Haman decides to uh, use this, this get-together to rehearse how great he is. So he's got his, all his friends there, and his wife is there. I'm sure she's heard it before, but apparently Haman has never read the word of Yahweh because in Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Now, I wonder what hubris goes before. <laughs> if pride does that, what will hubris do? Haman, beware. The Bible warns. Would you look at me? Look, not at me. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Haman's going to make a plan. Is it a good thing? Ecclesiastes is where I want to go. Chapter 9, I might have said 10. Uh, I did say 10. Uh, I want 10. 10, 8, and 9. And the advice of Solomon is this in chapter 10, 8, and 9. He who digs a pit may fall into it. You ever done that? I've dug postals before. I forgot they were there and stepped in them and twisted my ankle. And a serpent... I'm sorry, may bite him who breaks through a wall. I've gone into rooms on the farm, opened the door, and there was a, a rattlesnake. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. What's the point? The point is this, Haman, you're not even smart enough to realize that sometimes when you make plans to do something like uh, dig a hole or quarry rock or something like that, you can get hurt doing what you're doing. Uh, are you sure? Are you certain this is what you ought to do? 
Are you maybe digging your own pit? Are you setting up your own 75-foot-high impaling pole? Without the wisdom of God, you don't know those things. Well, he's telling everybody about how great he is. He starts with his riches, how glorious they are. Friend, they have to be pretty substantial for him to be able to say, I can reimburse the king's treasury with 10,000 talents of gold, 750,000 pounds, I'm sorry, of silver. I can reimburse that. Uh, just, you know, I'll have the guys haul it out there for you. No big deal. I'm sure they already knew that. He has ten sons, Esther 9, 7 to 10, names them for us. He also had story after story after story about the uh, king promoting him all through his climb up the ladder in the Persian government. Well, this happened to me, that happened to me. And 50 other guys were on the docket, but I got chosen. 180 guys were on, on the uh, docket, but I got chosen for that. And he says how much the king has given him authority, and above, it's above every prince and every other servant of the king. He even has bragging rights to the fact that the queen had just had a party for just him and the king. And he alone was the guest with the two of them, and guess what? Get this, tomorrow, I've been asked to do it again. Now, you would think that it would take a lot to ruin that guy's day, but it didn't. He has everything a man could want, and yet there is this bothersome mosquito in his tent, and his name's Mordecai, and he can't get past it. Has everything he wants. Oftentimes, I look at everything God has given me, and I rehearse in my mind that you didn't even need this stuff, but God gave it to you, and you really don't need anything else. Not really. And with that, I really should be satisfied. But there's times I find myself seeing a new tool and thinking, boy, wouldn't that be fine to have in my collection so I could use it one time? before I die. Sometimes we have that problem. He has everything he could want except one thing. In verse 13, he exposes his soul to his wife and his friends. All his possessions and glory do not give him satisfaction. And that's what's wrong with us as sinners. It doesn't matter how much some people have, it is never enough, just one more thing. And this guy has it politically, monetarily, and with authority. And none of it's good enough because of this one guy. Mordecai won't show him respect. Boo-hoo. Everybody cry with me. It's a pity party. Well, he, he invited the right people. They know how to handle that. You know what? Would you bow to Haman? Mordecai chose not to. Mordecai uh, chose not to that day after he knew he was already in trouble. The decree has already been out. They already know that all the Jews 11 months from now are going to be put to death by their friends and neighbors. And yet, he still didn't say, you know what, I'm just going to take a chance. He'll forgive me. I'm going to go ahead and bow today. He didn't do it. What would you have done? He already has this date with death. Haman knows it. Yet it burns Haman. Haman's arrogance is out of control, and so is his anger. He feels humiliated, disrespected, and ignored to the point of wanting to murder the man. And by the way, does he really believe that all the others that bow down to him do it because they admire him 
and think he deserves honoring. You think everybody else is bound because they want to? Everybody else thinks you're a fantastic guy? No, they're scared of you. They're scared of the king who said, everybody show this guy honor and respect. Everybody. No exceptions. And so they're doing it. And they got mad at Mordecai. Hey, we have to do it. Why not you? And then they turn him in. That's where we got into this mess. The, the scripture is going to point out very clearly that they, they do not admire him. They do not think highly of him. They have the, kind of the same problems that Mordecai does. It's just they're willing to bow. Mordecai said no. Proverbs in 29.11 teaches this. He is a fool who always loses his temper. He is a fool who always loses his temper. The fool lets anger dwell in his heart and he gives the devil a place in his life. This is where fools gather at Haman's house to give advice to an angry man who is throwing a temper tantrum. Don't expect good things to come from this meeting. Uh, just recently in our high school group, we went over Proverbs 1, 16 to 19. And it talks about uh, people wanting you to get together with them to do harm to other people. And it says, for their feet run to evil, they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, for they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. They set up a 75-foot pole to harm themselves. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. Boy, that's Haman. It takes away the life of its possessor. Yeah, that's, that's Haman again. The Bible knows. His friends counsel him to build this 75-foot high impaling pole, impaling pole. I don't know how you get somebody on that. You must do it on the ground and raise him up. I don't know. And they're going to stick Mordecai's body on it for everybody to see. So everybody in town that goes by says, that is why you don't mess with Haman. You don't want to end up there. It isn't worth it. And Haman wants the message to be loud and clear. And meanwhile, we have all the other Jews waiting for their death in about 11 months. Dr. Gary Smith said here, when the problem people are run off, then everyone will fit into their, their appropriate roles. Life will be wonderful again, and everyone can merrily go to their private parties and have a great time. Kind of reminds me of some things that are happening in our country. When the problem people are run off, then everyone will fit into their appropriate roles. Life will be wonderful again, and everyone can merrily go to their parties and have a great time. Why? Because the mosquitoes are dead. We got the flies out of the ointment. Let's have fun. We learned that sometimes the march of evil is sanctioned by the national government, said Dr. Schmutzer. The king is behind this, and he really doesn't understand what's going on yet. The advice pleased the evil man, Haman. And in the morning, his first order of business is to see to it that Mordecai is killed and impaled on that pole. Then, listen to this, then it's party time. With that guy gone and him out of my way, I can enjoy the party, don't have to worry about it anymore, so I want you to understand the plan. They're going to kill Mordecai. Haman has the power to get it done. He just has to, uh, you know, get permission from the king, and the king's not going to withhold it from him. He just gave away a whole nation to him to kill. 
And the plan is tomorrow morning, bright and early, I'm going to show up to the king, and I'm going to take care of Mordecai. It'll all be over. Then I can relax a little bit. Then the king and I will go to our party. We'll have a great time hooting and hollering and drinking and eating. And that also is a part of the uh, human makeup in our sinfulness. Let's get rid of our problem people, then we can feel good about ourselves. Now listen, Haman said, this is what's going to happen first thing in the morning. Well, who is he to say that? Second most powerful man in the nation of Persia, that's who. Did he can get it done? Well, everything would say that he could. So he utters the plan. And it's not recorded in your text, so don't look for it. But I'm sure that when he made the plan, God said, oh, really? You think you're going to do that? Really? Oh. What he doesn't know is that God in heaven is in control. And God is going to do what we would call a preemptive strike tomorrow morning. And Haman will be humiliated. Things will not go as he has planned. So let me leave some things with you. Number one, we learned that the people of God sought his help and wisdom. They fasted. And it is seen in the queen's approach. And by the way, James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, just ask God. He will give it to you liberally. Listen, God wants to give you wisdom. That's why we're studying the book of Proverbs. That's why we study the Bible. God wants to give you wisdom. He's not going to withhold it from you. So just ask him. Secondly, pray to God to give you favor in the eyes of those you're trying to reach for Christ. No question asked. This king is on Esther's side. She shows up at the doorway. Come on in. Good to see you. What do you need? You ask for it. I'll give it to you. And he finds out I'm going to a bank. He says, go get Haman right now. We're going. No hesitation. That's a God thing. Thirdly, an exaggerated sense of pride, we call that hubris, leads a person to finally destroy himself. You shouldn't have built the impaling pole because the one who's going to fall on it is you. He doesn't know that. And then lastly, some more advice from Proverbs 16.1 about life. Understand this. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. Let me reread that. Let me say something that it doesn't say. The plans of the heart belong to Haman, but the answer of the tongue will be from Yahweh. God is never not in control. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an exciting thing for us to look over the shoulders of Mordecai and Hadassah and the others and see them in a situation where you're not speaking, you're not guiding, you didn't send a prophet, they didn't look up any Bible verses for this stuff, and things are happening that we can't explain. A little Jewish girl becomes queen of Persia. Her adopted father works at the king's gate in the area of justice and judgment. And a wicked man has been promoted.
And you've got it. And you've got us. Make us men and women of faith who charge ahead in obedience that you've got it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.